1: Hi, welcome back to New Books in Anthropology, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Adam Bobek, and I'm a PhD candidate in cultural anthropology at the University of Leipzig. I am absolutely delighted today to welcome Professor Matthew C. Watson to the show. Professor Watson is Associate Professor of Anthropology at Mount Holyoke College, and today we're discussing his new book, Afterlives of Affect: Science, Religion, and an Edgewalker's Spirit, which was published in 2020 with Duke University Press. Professor Watson, welcome to the show. Hi Adam, it's a pleasure to be here. Could you tell us a little bit about the genesis of this book? Um, so it's nice to have an opportunity to
2: talk about the book. Uh, it's been uh, a real uh, passion project for me uh, across the, the past few years. Um, it has a, a, a long genesis. <laughs> it's It was in the making for um, a long time. I um, uh, wrote a dissertation in 2010 uh, that was a science studies-based approach to the history of Maya hieroglyphic decipherment. Um, so I was a graduate student um, who turned from archaeology to the history of archaeology. I had done some undergraduate work uh, in archaeology and some undergraduate work in cultural anthropology. Uh, and I ended up working uh, in my my graduate career with a, um, a, a Mesoamericanist archaeologist and historian of archaeology, Susan Gillespie, um, who pointed me uh, to the history of Maya hieroglyphic decipherment as an area that was sort of understudied uh, in terms of critical perspectives on the history of anthropology, right? Uh, There's been a lot written about um, Maya studies, and Maya studies is very important to the development of U.S. anthropology, uh, but there hadn't been a lot written about about hieroglyphic decipherment. And at at the time, I was working through theoretical and in my coursework as a graduate student. Uh, and perhaps the most one of the most consequential courses that I took was a, was a science studies seminar, an anthropology of science seminar uh, with Stacey Langwick that introduced me to a new way to think about epistemology, a new way to think about knowledge. And I was thinking about historical knowledge um, through, through other frames and other kinds of perspectives and trying to get a handle on um, how to think about the history of Maya studies. And I decided uh, at the time in conversation with Susan uh, and other That it would be exciting to think about the history of Maya hieroglyphic decipherment, something uh, that unfolded mostly in the 1970s and 1980s, though it continues today and had had precedents before that. Thinking about this moment, this much lauded, touted moment in the development of Maya studies through a science studies lens. What happens if we take the ideas of thinkers like Donna Haraway and and Bruno Latour, um, uh, Andrew Pickering and others uh, and apply these kind of systems oriented, complexity oriented perspectives to. Um, an object of knowledge that's not exactly science, right? Uh, that is was in many ways on the margins of science, right? So my hieroglyphic decipherment started in art history, uh, development uh, in the 40s, 50s, 60s uh, in art history, and, and by the, the 80s was a, a linguistic practice. So uh, it sort of scientized itself in ways, uh, in, in the ways that many um, 20th century disciplines that turn to language and linguistics do, right? So I, I was thinking about... Uh, hieroglyphic decipherment through the lens of science studies as this um, uh, field of knowledge on the edge of um, kind of humanistic and scientific uh, thought. Um, And what I found as I got into this, I I was sort of working through um, the history of Maya studies, Maya hieroglyphic studies, or epigraphy, as it's sometimes called, um, uh, through archival work um, and through some ethnographic work. Uh, And I found this very small Bounded community of experts um, who by the 90s had become deeply invested in enshrining their own internal history of their field. Uh, and what I was trying to do was sort of to. Uh, to kind of break open their own narrative of self. What does it mean if we tell a different story about the history of the field? This is why the work to me felt like and is ethnography and anthropological, right? I'm, I, 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 I took an object that was very close to, to the world that I was coming from in anthropology, but I wanted still to defamiliarize it in ways and to tell a different story, to tell a story that wasn't just reiterating uh, the, the narrative within Maya studies. And the narrative within Maya studies. The about decipherment, uh, really takes the developments of the 1970s and 80s with the precedence of um, the work of of a couple of scholars, uh, Russian and American before them, uh, as these fundamental moments and and tells a a story of of a progress, this this clear progress up to this moment of a kind of scientific revolution in the decipherment of myoglyphs. Um, So they talk about this kind of earlier history in which all of these scholars got Pretty much everything wrong, and then by the 1970s, or in the 1970s, all of a sudden they get everything right. Um, and I, I wanted to understand how they got everything right, or what it meant in their own ways of thinking, uh, 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 to, to to really understand uh, in a fundamental and deep way what ancient Maya writing is. Um, and at the same time, so I'm taking these science studies perspectives. I'm also as a graduate student. My last two years of graduate school, I taught six uh, sections of Introduction to Linguistic Anthropology, uh, a fall, spring, summer, fall, spring, summer. So by the, I was writing my dissertation and teaching uh, an intro language, uh, you know, linguistic anthropology course. Coming from a place where I had some semiotics background, but not a deep understanding of linguistic anthropology at the time, uh, and I was becoming attached to some of the ideas in linguistic anthropology, like, um, um, Michael Silverstein's construction of language ideology, perhaps m- perhaps most centrally. Um, other perspectives too, uh, um, Michelle Rizaldo's critique of speech act theory was very valuable to me, um, a, a critique that's pretty rooted in ideas about language ideology, an argument that uh, the, the way we think about what language is is determined by our, our own systems of attitudes and systems of beliefs. So I was coming from a perspective that was rethinking the history of, of anthropology, archaeology, art history, through science studies, influenced by language ideology, challenging the internal narrative of what what Maya hieroglyphic um, hieroglyph experts advocated at the time. Um, so uh, I was opening up those those problems, uh, finished this dissertation, um, Assembling the Ancient Public Science in, in the Decipherment of Maya Hieroglyphs, and um, published some articles out of that work, some science studies-based work, a piece in American Anthropologist and um, a piece in Social Studies of Science that are very science studies works, right? The piece in American Anthropologist looks at the these workshops on hieroglyphic writing from the 1980s that were held at the University of Texas Austin, and the way that the um, teachers of those workshops, including the figure who becomes central to my later book project, uh, Linda Sheely, uh, cultivated in a broad public um, an attachment to ancient Maya glyphs, an attachment to the idea of deciphering them. Um, And I published a piece that was on a controversy over the age of death of a 7th century Maya Lord Pakal in Social Studies of Science, uh, which is um, a controversy piece. Uh, There's a tradition in science studies of looking at scientific controversies as space's where the implications and underlying cultural um, uh, norms uh, of scientific practice, of science in action, become exposed, become more obvious, right? So I was was doing those kinds of studies and, and working from a position that was pretty critical of the politics of hieroglyphic decipherment. Um, Hieroglyphic decipherment is is a part of a broad um, institution of Maya studies uh, that's deeply attached to both systems of funding in in the United States. Big funders like the Rockefellers and the Carnegies uh, funded mid-century, early mid-century Maya studies um, because they had economic interests in in Mexico. Uh, And um, I was trying to think about this from a perspective that that uh, told you know this other this other story what if we think critically about the ways that those, these scholars coming from these um, highly funded major U.S. institutions, what if we think critically about how they they reconstruct the ancient Maya and what the consequences of that are uh, in the political present? Um, There's a tradition in Maya studies of thinking uh, along those lines, um, you know, running back to at least the 1980s, a, a light critical tradition within Maya studies, but it is itself a pretty bounded community. So I was working out um, these problems and, and trying to, to think carefully uh, from a science studies perspective about what Maya hieroglyphic decipherment was. And I made these arguments that, that uh, through language ideology frame, uh, to some extent, not as technically as the, the real linguistic anthropologists, um, but I, I made these arguments uh, that this is a kind of reduction of Maya writing. Right, that the the beliefs that the that, that um, epigraphers hieroglyph experts have about uh, writing are pretty different from uh, what ancient Maya scribes a uh, thousand years ago right thought about what they were doing right so I tried to say this is a kind of and I did argue that this is a reduction of um, uh, a complex aesthetic form that is both art and, writing uh, to a particular narrow set of ideas about what writing is so I I, I adopted what one might think about as a somewhat paranoid position a, uh, not a consp- conspiratorial paranoid position but a strong theory right um, challenging uh, some of the terms and political implications of hieroglyphic decipherment which r- ramified throughout the, the the political worlds and the Economic world of tourism within Mexico and Guatemala, uh, and and I think n- not always to to a great great effects, right? Uh, to complex, ambivalent effects that that colonial science studies is is keen to pick up. So. I was working through those problems. I was writing this critical work. Um, and I was, was reading, uh, experimental ethnography and I was reading, uh, in, in affect theory. Uh, I was finding myself, um, taken, uh, by, um, the works uh, of thinkers like Eve Sedgwick and Katie Stewart and, and started to ask myself about 2012, uh, Whether it might be more valuable to write um, an experimental uh, and weak theoretical, to use that that term, there's strong theory and weak theory in in parts of affect studies. Affect studies advocate sometimes that we work from weak theory rather than a strong theory that determines our objects, but instead that kind of feels ethnographically or otherwise with the texts and people that we we think about. Um, So I was trying to think with some of their ideas about uh, affect, to think about how decipherment itself was a site of affect, uh, of heightened affect, right? So I started to think about these amateurs, the public that Linda Sheely drew in, not from the position of trying to critique decipherment, but from the position of trying to follow the amateurs into their spaces of heightened attachment to Sheely and to the ancient Maya right? Um, and that's what really motivated me uh, to write this book. Um, it, some of the early writing was also in conversation with um, kind of the limits of animal studies. The first chapter that I that I wrote uh, was published as an article first in Cultural Critique, um, uh, The Animal Anthropology of Linda Sheely's Spirits, which becomes animals in the book. Uh, and it's a, uh, an examination of this Figure, this artist and art historian Linda Sheely, um, through her attachment to uh, the companion, uh, companion, companionate rabbit, um, an animal spirit companion, her appropriation or adoption of a quasi Maya ways of thinking about uh, attachment to animal others through a spiritual frame, um, a, a problematic one. Uh, in ways, uh, but also um, a very uh, sincere uh, set of of, uh, practices in terms of kind of reconstructing her artistic and critical self. So I was thinking with her and about the limits of animal studies by thinking with her. And I found her to be a really extraordinary guide uh, to 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 offer a a different set of ideas than what I'd taken from her work before. I had photographed her letters. Uh, So Linda Sheely died in 1998 um, and I photographed uh, her letters at the table of her widower's home um which was quite an extraordinary experience as a graduate student um uh it's a different experience than most archival research right uh because most archival research takes place in archives and this was actually like working with somebody's personal papers in a in a private setting and and i um I, you know i i i became increasingly attached uh at, at about 2012 to following Linda Sheely into the world of of the ancient Maya in what I think is a more low theoretical, um, sincerely ethnographic frame. So the, the purpose of this book was to write um, a, a kind of experimental ethnography that centered Linda Sheely as a figure, as a charismatic figure within the field. Um, uh, so that um, she drew me in. Uh, and this book was my effort to contribute to, I think, a world that she helped to create.
1: Maybe there are some listeners who don't know who Linda Sheely is. So maybe could you give a little bit of an introduction, an introduction to Linda Sheely? Sure, sure. Um, so Sheely was an, an artist
2: first uh, in terms of her professional trajectory. She was uh, from the, the suburbs of Nashville, Tennessee, uh, and born in the 40s. Um, and she uh, was a, a surrealist painter. She briefly, uh, 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 you know, tried to pursue a a graduate career in in literary criticism, uh, but found it to be, uh, in Linda's words, nitpicking bullshit. Um, And Linda uh, uh, became uh, kind of returned after that brief uh, graduate stint to her um, uh, undergraduate institution, the University of Cincinnati, where she finished an MFA in surrealist art. Uh she was a biomorphic surrealist painter. Uh think of Miro or Klee. Um and she um uh, uh, you know uh, she was employed as a as a, a, a painting uh, um, uh, instructor, um assistant professor actually at the, at the University of South Alabama. Her first job out of graduate school. Um Uh, It was at the University of South Alabama. And uh, because of her proximity to Mexico uh, and connections that her husband, David Cheely, an architect, had with uh, archaeologists working in Mexico, she uh, began to travel to Mexico. Um, So she went to uh, the Maya area um, a number of times uh, in the early 70s. She traveled to uh, a particularly important uh, ancient Maya site uh, called Palenque, which is in the northeastern corner of Chiapas uh, in 1970. And there she encountered uh, uh, another artist. Uh, Merle Green Robertson, uh, and Robertson had been trained as a a landscape painter, a Western landscape painter, uh, but had become an art historian. And uh, had set up shop in Palenque where she was um, working on, on producing a corpus of rubbings uh, of the, the iconography uh, and inscriptions, architectural inscriptions. So she was working with a particular technique that involved uh, reproducing inscriptions through, through uh, rubbings. And, and Linda Sheeley came to apprentice with, with uh, Robertson. Um, she came to work very closely with Robertson at, at Palenque. Um, and she became um, enamored with the ancient Maya, with the romance of the ancient Mayas, which is an old story <laughs> uh, cutting back to at least the 19th century and travel writers um, uh, becoming enamored by the romance of the the Maya archeological sites and, and artifacts and, and architecture. Um, so she uh, became attached to this kind of site of Palenque in ways that, that um, were were at once historical and in some sense as my work starts to think through uh in this book uh, a pretty religious set of attachments or a pretty spiritual set of attachments um So she was working with Robertson. She uh, wasn't thrilled as a a painting instructor at the University of South Alabama. Uh, And she, um, in the late 70s, decided to pursue, uh, after she'd already established herself in the field, um, uh, through a series of of, uh, roundtable meetings, uh, these public workshops in Palenque and, and some publications, she pursued a PhD in art history. At, at UT Austin uh, in the late 70s, got it done in just, I think, three years, um, uh, and then started to teach uh, Maya art history art history, and, and, and Maya studies uh, at UT Austin. There she founded this series of public workshops, uh, originally called the Workshops on Maya Hieroglyphic Writing, and later called the Maya Meetings, um, uh, that became very popular in the 1980s. Right. So, so Sheely, um, uh, was teaching a broad public who were, Uh, attracted to the kind of romance of the ancient Maya, uh, how to uh, understand uh, the writing system in ways that really cultivated in them or kind of diffused in this public audience a sense of of heightened affect, a sense of of profound excitement. Right. Um, So Sheely was this animated figure herself, a very charismatic um, uh, teacher and, and professor and scholar and thinker. Right. So she drew around her uh, this large kind of community of um, uh, you know uh, e- everyday people people with all kinds of jobs coming from uh, from all kinds of corners of their lives who chose to spend their vacations uh, by traveling to Austin for a week every spring to participate or a few days a few days and then later a week to participate in this workshop. And they, they developed a community, uh, around this workshop. Um, so, uh, she, she became this very, uh, compelling, uh, figure uh, within the field. She wrote a series of popular books, um, uh, Forest of Kings, uh, with David Friedel and, and Maya Cosmos with David Friedel and the writer, Joy Parker, uh, and, and, and several others, um, uh, that, really synthesized popular writing and scholarship she's remarkable in this respect um that she was writing uh these these books that were at once pop- popular and if you read the footnotes of of you know forest of kings they're they're making they're making pretty original profoundly original at times scholarly claims um so she was was producing, through these workshops and these popular press books, a community of devoted amateurs around the world of ancient Maya writing uh, decipherment, right. Um, so she became this popular core of the field in the 1980s, uh, as it was, in some ways, Professionalizing, uh, she she has been called the last amateur anthropologist, which I think is kind of silly because they're still amateur anthropologists, amateur Mayanist, uh, Maya uh, hieroglyph expert, uh, amateur epigrapher. Um, so she wrote uh, these popular books. She had these popular workshops, um, and um, she. Uh, um, Uh, You know, played an an integral role in transforming Maya studies broadly in uh, drawing from the work of Mayanist epigraphers like Evan Vogt, an argument that the Maya had for thousands of years retained this core kind of set of cultural beliefs, right? Uh, a pretty a pretty dubious argument from an anthropological perspective, uh, but one that was persuasive and compelling uh, to an audience at that time. Um, so Shealy became this, this very charismatic center of the field. And um, she tragically died. Died at age fifty-five. Died young of pancreatic cancer. Um, she died in, in nineteen ninety-eight. Um, so um, my my work started, you know, on this this project a little less than a, a decade later. Uh, to think uh, about uh, what the kind of public world and the scholarly world and the 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 social world of ancient Maya studies and Maya hieroglyphic decipherment was.
1: And in this, the title of the book is "Afterlives of Affect: Science, Religion, and an Edgewalker Spirit." And you've touched on this a, a little bit without actually using the word. Can you talk about what edge walking is?
2: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, in fact, it's it's fun, but also hard for me. Uh, so, she the edgewalker is Sheely's term, right? Uh, she called herself an edgewalker. Um, uh, I, I'll, I'll pull the passage if you don't mind if I read a passage. Um, she uh, she said in a, a documentary that that's called Edge Walker, uh, made about her and and released if I recall after her after her death. She says there are people who are centralists and there are people who walk on the edge, and I think it's the edge walkers that continually push the box and push the shape at the edge, and I think they're the people that make fields change. I've always deliberately chosen to be an edge walker, knowing that my work is going to be wrong. But I also change the nature of the field and change its directions and get other people to take on different kinds of questions that I would never be able to do if I was a centralist. So here in this kind of documentary produced at the end of of Sheely's life, she's contrasting her own work um, as somebody who... Came into art history and Maya studies from the position of being um, an artist first, uh, also a woman, right? Uh, in a field that was dominated by men, she was around other important women, Merle Green Robertson, and, and other important uh, women um, art historians. Uh, but the 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 dominant forces in Maya studies remained deeply masculine. Archaeology was a deeply masculine space at that time, so. And and I imagine, I'm not a historian of art history, but I imagine that art history was as well. Um, And she's thinking about herself here toward the end of her life uh, as somebody who um, was willing to take risks, was willing to be wrong. Uh, was willing to push the boundaries of a field uh, was willing not to reproduce its center uh, but to to approach it from the edge to approach it from the margins. Uh, I think it's hard not to think about Austin when you think about edge walking Austin in the 70s in the 80 late 70s and the 1980s um, the kind of really weird, Austin, like she, she had come from a, a place, you know, that wasn't the center of Maya studies. Centers of Maya studies were, you know, places like Harvard um, and to some extent Tulane. Uh, you know, there were, there were these institutional centers of Maya studies. Uh, and Sheely was, was not of them. Uh, she was um, a, an experimenter. She was uh, um, an, an edge pusher. She was a risk taker um, and she was willing to be wrong. And I, I sort of love this willingness to be wrong. I think that anthropology at its best uh, is willing to be wrong, is willing to take risks and willing to be wrong. And I think it's also really, there's a moment in the book where I call anthropology, uh, because some of this book becomes a kind of meditation on anthropology. Uh, And I I call the book, um, uh, The Amateur Science of Marginal Magic. Right. And I think about uh, Sheely as being this um, this kind of. Kind of lover of the ancient Maya, amateur comes from from love, right? From Amare, right? This lover of the ancient Maya, uh who was was willing in very popular books to push the boundaries of argumentation. I'm writing these days about um, uh Evan Vogt in the Harvard Chiapas Project. And 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 there's a there's a letter from Vogt, uh, who is a real institutional center, kind of central figure, uh, to Maya studies, at least, Maya ethnography. Um and there's a a letter that he writes to to Schiele and Friedel about one of their books, I think Forest of Kings, and and says, you know, I I'm not sure if these arguments, if some of these arguments are going to stand the test of time. Um, but they're they are. It's profound that you've argued them. That that that, like Levi Strauss's work, they are um, they are willing to 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 take the risk of pushing the boundaries of of knowledge, of of trying to undo the staid conventions that we adopt uh, as as disciplinary thinkers. That all of us, I think, in our institutional socialization into fields, right. Sheely was trying to unsettle some of those ideas, um, and some of this is, a, um, is a, a you know a hyperbolic triumphalist narrative that the minus were spinning. Uh, but I think when one really digs down um, into what Sheely was doing, I, I don't think that that when she calls herself an edge walker, she's being insincere. I, I think that she she really felt herself somebody who was not quite comfortable uh, in the worlds of of uh, Maya studies and, and uh, art history uh, and that she was thinking about the art and artifice of that work. She, she remained an artist. If you read her her interviews, she she's not she doesn't come at at history or knowledge or myth or language from a position that's overdetermined. She she comes at these problems um, as somebody who's like who's a bricolore, who's like a, a creative thinker, right, who's just kind of working with the the. the the shreds and patches at hand and trying to to make a story, to tell a story, right? She understands as an artist, she understood the artifice of scholarly work. So I think edgewalking is about understanding the art and artifice uh, of our work. I think edgewalking is about um, the willingness to be wrong, the willingness to take risks, uh, the willingness to push against um, the the centers of anthropological or other disciplinary attitudes. and the the uh, perpetual ongoing value of experimentation. Um, I think anthropology these days sometimes suffers from from taking on um, too many um, core ideas that are um, widely understood on a certain level or like uh, topics that are, are on the front page of the New York Times, the political topics of the day. And that's important work. Those are on the front page of the New York Times for very important reasons. Uh, but at the same time, uh, anthropology gives us this license to be to to experiment with the world, to tell a different story, to work in the margins of the world, whatever those margins might be. Those margins might be very distant from the the geopolitical centers of scholarly work, uh, or, or they might be right in the middle. Right, you know right in some some edge in the middle some 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 hole in the middle of our own scholarly work our laboratories our conversations etc right so so Schiele, um, really inspired a lot of people to think Think about how um, I think on some level this was a creative and social project to you know and and that we ought to to think to think as we do scholarly work about the creative social world that we are also constructing. I think a, a sensibility that centers or that I guess you can't center it, but that that draws on a notion of edge walking is one that is self aware in in its own critical sensibility. Um, and unlike, I don't want to speak with too broad a brush, um, but unlike some of the more narrowly linguistic thinkers uh, that, that um, mostly have followed Chile, uh some of whom have, have been uh, very consequential. Thinkers uh, and have done very interesting things uh, and have been awarded for it. Uh, but unlike some of these big stars of the Maya world who follow Shealy, like Steve Houston and, and David Stewart and, and others, um, Shealy, I, I think, thought about this as uh, an open public space of um, really kind of pushing the boundaries of the way that we think. Right, not not just a narrow story about what a particular sign in a particular glyph means, which is what most of the Maya epigraphy literature looks like. It, it it's incremental, but it's it's at a at a very very like um, narrow scale or small scale. Right, that the kind of work that decipherment is is um, piecemeal. Incremental. You decipher sign by sign. It's a slow and tedious and difficult task. And what Sheely made of that world is a, a a deeply social, incredibly heightened set of of attachments among among a lot of people, who some of which were looking for something to attach to. Right, who really needed something to animate them. Um, and, and so she produced a very weird Austin and, you know, world of, of, um, of the ancient Maya, uh, of, of people attached to the ancient Maya. Um, so that's me walking around the notion of edge walking, which is perhaps all I can do.
0: This episode is brought to you by sax.com at sax.com. It's easy to find your new vibe, Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott, or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com.
1: Speaking of telling different stories, now we've talked a lot about Shealy, but this is not a biography of Linda Shealy, as you mentioned very clearly in the book. Could you describe for listeners what you're doing here in Afterlives of Affect and maybe talk a little bit about the form of the book?
2: Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Thanks. So
2: um, as I said, this is a somewhat experimental book. Um, I, I call it a person-centered uh, um, experimental ethnography. Um, so, uh, I, it's hard for me to compare it, um, to other person-centered books, but of course in that space, I'm thinking about Zhao Biel's Vita, uh, centered around, uh, Katerina, uh, uh, you know, a, a patient in a mental asylum in, in, in Brazil that, that takes very seriously, uh, some of the way that ways that Katarina thinks. And I, I think about uh the work of of um of uh, uh Warwick Anderson on um uh Carlton Gajdasek, uh, a history of science that's person oriented very storytelling uh that's engaged in in following a particular scientist in and and amateur anthropologist into a, a world of of biomedical science but that takes one through um, quasi-ethnographic work in New Guinea. So, so I'm thinking alongside um, some of these kinds of experimental, semi-experimental works of person-centered ethnography and history. Uh, and also I'm thinking alongside the affect theorists and experimental anthropologists um uh, and there's a I think a, a, a really important tradition of, of experimental anthropology and and um, uh, a lot a lot of uh, interest in uh, invigorating experimentalism and and can of play with ethnographic form today <clears throat> excuse me <clears throat> So I, um, I I started this uh, project uh, by trying to kind of break out of the somewhat more conventionally written mold of my science studies work. Uh, And in 2012, I wrote um, uh, the Animal Anthropology of Linda Sheely's Spirits essay, um, which really took me uh, into thinking uh, with Sheely about um, uh, Maya studies uh, and thinking about um, how I might write this story very differently, right? Um, so I, I I wrote this experimental chapter that critiqued some of the term to the animal uh, in anthropology, thinking with Linda Sheely's own um, uh, Spirit companionship, and I uh, uh, then wrote um, um, a piece that was um, a couple of pieces, uh, cause what that which are in the book, uh, the chapters, sacrilege and cosmos, early chapters in the book which are written, um, in, in vignettes. Uh, uh, sacrilege is certainly written in a, in a nod to, to Katie Stewart's ordinary affects, though it takes obviously a very different kind of object rather than thinking about the, the kind of, um, um, post-industrial anime of, uh, the United States like this sacrilege thinks about the, the, um, what it is to engage with the dead, what it is to think about and think with the dead. And here I'm thinking about what it means for me to write um, an ethnography of of someone I didn't know, right? Of somebody who died before I took an anthropology course right before I took an anthropology course for the first time. Um, And uh, I I, I thought about this as a kind of, um, as a kind of allergy uh, as a a turn in my work that would open up this experimental way uh, to think about forms of attachment. Um, I think that um, experimental ethnography sometimes can be um, really uh, distant from the world that it's evoking, right? I'm, I'm invested in a notion of evoking a world, but I, th- I also want to to evoke a world um, richly. Uh, I wanna evoke a world that feels um, like an ethnographic kind of experiment, right? And I think that um, what I was trying to do was to take the pieces I had, the fragments I had of Sheely's life, the some of the letters that I had, and to 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 form those into a kind of evocation. Of her, her social world, of the 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 world, the social and epistemic world that animated and, and her and and gave sense to her work, right? Um, and to do that, I found myself um, kind of breaking from conventional forms. I was very grateful that Cultural Critique was willing to publish a, this experimental piece that I'd written, and it gave me hope that I um, that that I could write a book that that was as much. Engaged with questions of form, as it is engaged with questions of substance, or a kind of critical position that it's that it's honing. Um, and the book is written in a series of different styles. Sacrilege, the first substantive chapter after the introduction, is written in this series of vignettes that evokes um, the archive that I was work- working with. Um, I I wrote. Uh, animals and Cosmos. Early uh, Cosmos um, uh, was originally written as a. Um, it was originally called uh, Six Degrees of Carl Sagan, um, and it was a, uh, a, written as a, as as seven short vignettes that are uh, person-centered and that trace out the connections between Linda Sheely uh, and Carl Sagan uh, and um, Lynn Margulis, who was um, Carl Sagan's first wife, and Dorian Sagan, their their son, um, uh, and and, uh, thinks uh, about how Sheely had a connection with Sagan uh, and how Dorian Sagan at that time uh, had uh, kind of entered into conversation with anthropologists um, uh, around some of the philosophical questions that, <clears throat> that we were asking at that time. Um, and I was, um, I, I was on a panel with him at the AAA and I, uh, um, had this encounter with Dorian when, uh, at the AAA where he was the culture at large speaker, the society for cultural anthropologies, um, uh, distinguished speaker. And at that com- when he was at that conference, the AAA, um, uh, uh, Lynn Margulis had a, had a stroke. Uh, So I was thinking about the connections between Sagan and uh, Sheely, Carl Sagan and Sheely. And I met Dorian at this conference and, and I was, I was influenced on some level uh, by his work and and by Lynn Margulis' work as well. Uh, And I I was just thinking about how the, my object, my object had imploded (laughs) Right, like I, I was trying to use the ideas of, of thinkers uh, who were kind of systems thinkers, influenced by by Margulis and people like Isabel Stengers, and and and, and to use their ideas to make sense out of Linda Shiley's world, her world, and David Frettl's world, uh, and here at the AAA, the strange ethnographic moment of the AAA, where uh, my these worlds are colliding and. Dorian was working through um, the, the the you know the sickness or the stroke and and if the eventual death of his of his mother right so uh, I was thinking about the Linda Sheely and thinking about what it means to write about the dead and to live with the dead and to attach to the dead and I was seeing this other side of my project this more theoretical corner of the work that I was doing, uh, as struggling with the same or working through the same kinds of problems. So there was this implosion and I wrote six degrees of Carl Sagan and, and, uh, don't tell the folks at Duke, but nobody wanted to publish it. No journals wanted to publish it. And my, my wonderful, wonderful editor at Duke, Liz Alt, who's an extraordinary person and was a great guide into like how to make an experimental book happen. Um, uh, You know, Liz said, well, you know, this piece uh, is, it was, it was too, it, it was evocative, but it didn't quite know what it evoked. Right. And um, so I built the piece out uh, in a sense. And so if you read, cosmos, uh, up until there are these three asterisks asterisks, um, at, at, in each of the section, uh, and the original form of that chapter, this is the key to the chapter. The original form to the chapter is that it has an experimental vignette in each section followed by the kind of, um, e- extrapolation, the explication that I wrote years later in order to make it into a real, a real chapter that somebody would publish. Um, so I was, I was playing with form through this period. I was thinking with folks like Stuart, I you know not actively, I don't know her, but I you know um, uh, you know more more uh, direct colleagues um, who were engaged in experimentalism, um, uh, Stuart McLean uh, and others Anand Pandian, um, you know that that kind of corner of an experimental ethnography, uh, and thinking about what would happen if we did that not with the kind of conventional objects of ethnographic knowledge, but but with the with the, the social world that that surrounded the, the, the ancient Maya, uh, th- through Linda Sheely. So, um, so those were the the initial experiments, but each of the chapters actually reads a little differently in terms of its form structure and style of experimentation. Some of them are m- more scholarly. Some of them are more playful. Not that those are not that I would ever hold those as opposed.
1: <laughs> yeah. I'd like to zoom in maybe on one chapter In chapter five, Maybe you could introduce listeners just generally to chapter five before we get into some specifics. Um, so,
2: so chapter five uh, is titled Genius. Um, it uh, is uh, an, a kind of exploration of the idea of genius. Um, Sheely was, was called a genius uh, by a number of her colleagues. Um, uh, and I was attracted to that idea uh not because I have some grandiose notion that there is such a thing as a genius right uh but because I think when I think what we do as ethnographers is to take seriously what people say about the world and if the people around Linda were calling her a genius if people like Gillette Griffin who was an art curator um at at Princeton uh it, it, call, called her a genius the chapter starts I think, with Gillette Griffin calling her a genius uh, and others, I think Andrea Stone um, and and Griffin saying that he, he was friends with Einstein and he gives Linda Shealy the intellectual edge. Uh, I I wanted to explore what it meant to think about Shealy as a genius. Um, And I was immediately drawn uh, uh, to the, the ways that she was attached with other kind of big thinkers like, like Carl Sagan. They, they, Corresponded to some extent, and I was drawn to some more passing um, correspondences between Schliess and and Levi Strauss, Claude Levi Strauss, uh, who wrote uh Schiele and and some of her immediate colleagues to to, to laud uh, their their developments in in Maya studies. The fact that they'd taken this 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 body of of inscriptions that that scholars for decades had thought about as as m- maybe not being writing. There are arguments uh, about whether it was writing at all, uh, and the the most popular position um, in the '50s and the '60s, uh, owing to uh, to J. Eric S. Thompson and Sylvanus Morley and other other um, kind of. Old dons of Maya studies uh, was that this was um, um, a body of astrological, you know, rebuses that were used by astronomer priests in their in their own kind of astrological uh, thinking, and and some of those inside Maya studies say that that Thompson was trying to think outside the the, um, the horrors of World War, which he'd seen. They were using this as a kind of um, uh, space to project their own fantasies of, the, of a utopic. Other world that's more peaceful than the the horrors that they'd experienced, um, and and Sheely uh, and and her co- her colleagues instead uh, build this. Other kind of world, and she's taken up as as this 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 profound thinker, uh, but I I, I struggle uh, as an as an anthropologist still um, with taking seriously a notion of genius. So so I use the connection between Sheely and Levi Strauss uh, to think about whether um, uh, this is in fact a, a really valuable internal myth within ancient Maya studies, right? What we're talking about, uh, is the, the, this kind of, um, this work of bricolage as, as Levi-Strauss calls it, right? This creative work with the the shreds and patches at hands with the, you know, with the received signifiers and signifies that the terms that we get in our everyday life, we stitch them together. There is no, prof- there is no truly original thought. There is no truly original idea. Everything is kind of bricolage, um, and Levi Strauss and, and later Derrida uh, uh, are, are pretty invested at, at moments uh, in thinking about um, the opposition between uh, this kind of work of bricolage and the the work of, of kind of totalizing knowledge, the the scientist or the engineer, the engineer opposed to the to the bricoleur. Um, and uh, what I wanted to do was take seriously the um, Mayanists' myth of decipherment and myth of genius or story of decipherment and story of genius. Uh, and I wanted to take it seriously by, by, um, uh, kind of working Sheely and, and Levi-Strauss's ideas together, taking, um, taking, uh, my central text of Levi-Strauss in that, in that chapter is his introduction to the work of Marcel Mose, um, which is one of Levi-Strauss's in my reading. I haven't read all of the Levi-Straussian corpus, but, uh, in my reading, it's one of his, his stranger, Essays and one of his more fascinating essays, uh, and it's the essay that um, becomes this cornerstone of, of Derrida's and other post-structuralists' thinking. Um, uh, you know, in structure, sign, and play, in the discourse of the human sciences, Derrida takes takes this idea of the the, the engineer and says, "This is a myth of the bricolours making." So, what happens when we when we think? Uh, with the, the Mayanists who are studying ancient Maya myth about the myths that they're telling, that they're storying about themselves. Um, I don't, uh, get so, so technical as to be engaged in a structural analysis of, of anything, um, uh though though I edged toward it at other moments in my work um but I I I wanted to take seriously levi strausss uh, reading of mose um uh as a truly remarkable essay that thinks about how mose's work on religion uh is not a distant critical work we tend to read if you read mose um the book you're most likely to read is the gift right uh and the book that is that sticks in my head uh, in a way that that undoes how i think uh is really general theory of magic general theory of magic is uh the text that introduces i think uh the idea of mana uh also is is engaged with the idea of, of how um these these oceanic concepts that moses is drawing you know, into French sociological thought, uh, he's thinking abstractly about, um, uh, mana in particular, uh, and Levi-Strauss is attached to the way that most, uh, is not just thinking about mana, which is a, uh, you know, an oceanic term for a sacred impersonal force. Right. Uh, and has all of these different meanings and all this kind of ambiguity to it, this built in ambiguity. Right. So, um, what Levi Strauss does, what, perhaps one of the most fascinating things that I find in that piece is that levi strauss thinks about Moses' reading of mana as an enactment of mana, as an extension of mana. That 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 Moses himself is caught by the the sacred, the force, the sacred force of mana, that what that what he's doing as he thinks about and tries to rewrite uh, the way that people think about magic in this text that is Kind of an uh, an ethnological, like a nineteenth-century ethnological text. It reads as much like like nineteenth-century ethnologists as anything, right? It's generalizing. It's grand. It's it's big and, and it bigger than the gift in terms of its its scope. But but Levisstro sees clearly uh, that that most is extending the magic uh, of that he's describing. That that there's this performative quality. To the the analytical work that he's doing, uh, and Levi Strauss, you know, says when we think about what mana is and mana does, we are we are we are thinking about this floating signifier, this this term, right? That that has a surfeit, an, an excess of meaning, right? That that can't ever quite be pinned down. And Levi Strauss here says we need this excess of meaning in order to be able to even communicate. Right. That when I say God and you say God, we mean something different, but we can still communicate through that term. Right. So a floating signifier is this glue that keeps language and really language in its communicative interpersonal uh, performance. Uh, it, It keeps it. Working, it enables us to have this conversation, right? The words that I say mean different things to me than they mean to you, right? Uh, but certain terms really have that that profound range, uh, and really for for Levi Strauss, following most uh, organized thought, um, and. So I'm thinking, uh, with most uh, that that mana that to write about, you know, these kinds of ideas is to continue them, is to enact them. So I'm thinking about what it means for Sheely to um, to to kind of build on and draw on these classic Maya concepts that are, um, you know, very different from their context of use. Right when she writes about the why, the the spirit companion, uh, or when she she writes about um, the closely related idea of the how, the Lord, or, or any of these like core uh, terms that they're working to decipher and struggling to decipher. Uh, what they're trying to do is to to partake of uh, that. A reconstructed version of that that ancient Maya that ancient Maya world. So Levi Strauss helps me to think about that continuous effort to reconstruct a world that came before us and to which we are indebted. Whether it's a reinvention, as is the case in something like you know so-called decipherment, or, or whether it's our continuous work of memory and and transformation of the, the 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 world we have around us through through the terms we we have we have at hand, right? That this is. Not um, uh, a a series of oppositions, a series of external analyses, but instead um, this kind of continuous process of of reimagining. And 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 once you think down that line, I think once you follow a Levi Straussian early Levi Straussian logic, it's not it's not hard to start to think about how this is a, a, a spiritual or religious. Practice right—a uh, practice of of hermeneutically receiving ideas and transforming them into something new that we offer to those who come after us. Uh, of taking the floating signifiers that we have around us and and offering some a uh, sense to them with the, with the knowledge that others will 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 find a different sense. Um, so uh, I I think about Levi Strauss and shealy together here uh, as similar kinds of thinkers and thinkers that had a, a brief contact. contact. Um, and I, I, I kind of am fascinated by a moment in, in um, Levi-Strauss's introduction where he reads uh, the floating signifier um, uh, in relation to uh, a kind of divine speech and understanding, um, uh, uh, something that I think hasn't been been fully um, kind of worked out, and I'll leave it to those who, who are 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 more dedicated to the history of structuralism than I am, uh, to work out some of those implications. But I find it very very exciting to to play and think with. Um, yeah. So that wasn't that was a rambling discussion of the chapter, but <laughs> that it circles around some of those ideas and the myth of genius. It's absolutely brilliant.
1: This book is such a thrilling read. It's so wonderful. Uh, There is one tradition on the New Books Network that I like to uphold at the end of all my interviews, which is what are you working on now?
2: So I am um, continuing uh, to work in the history of Maya studies uh i'm becoming um perhaps a bit more historical these days in terms of the way that i'm thinking about the history of anthropology um and i'm you know through my work on cheeli and hieroglyphic decipherment i became um pretty interested uh in um the the work of ethnographers in highland chiapas in the mid 20th century uh so uh i'm finally so starting in 2000 17, uh, I, I finally began archival work that was on the history of my ethnography. Um, uh, particularly I'm writing a history of the Harvard Chiapas project, uh, which I I mentioned Evan Vogt earlier as an influence on Chile, um, uh, who argued, who kind of drew on certain tradition of Maya studies, uh, to, to make this argument that, um, the, the community of Xinacantán on the outskirts, or the, the neighbor to San Cristóbal de las Casas in Chiapas, that Xinacantán was this closed corporate community. What what you know, Eric Wolf and others call this closed corporate community. Uh, and I'm interested in how how vote came to that community. He he was from the American Southwest. Uh, New Mexico, um, and he'd done work in the Amer- in the Southwest, uh, but in um, the mid 1950s, after getting tenure at Harvard, uh, he turned to uh, to ancient Maya studies. Was invited, or, or contemporary Maya studies, excuse me, Maya ethnography, um, and he started ethnographic field work and a, a, shu- a huge, um, uh, ethnographic field school. In 1957. Uh, the field work in 57, the field school started in 60. Um, so I'm uh, writing right now about the relationship between the Mexican state uh, and Harvard anthropology uh, in the 1950s and the 1960s. Um, uh, Mexican anthropology uh, was transforming at the time. Um, in the 1940s, after the Pazcuaro conference of 1940, which introduces a, a notion of indigenismo, um, pan-indigenous thought uh, in the Americas, uh, and gives a kind of anthropological charge to Latin American states. The Mexican state in 1948 establishes um, the Instituto Nacional Indigenista, the INI, um, and they they go to Chiapas and they work uh, to uh, as a Quasi-settler colonial project to to draw uh, the Celtal and Soctil speakers of uh, Highland Chiapas into the Mexican state, into identification with the Mexican state. At the same time, uh, or shortly thereafter, um, they some of the the major figures in in um, Mexican anthropology invite Evan Vote. Uh, and some others. They're Chicago anthropologists working in Highland Chiapas with the Man in Nature project. Um, So they they start these, what will become major, huge ethnographic collaborative projects, right? Uh, And they have this kind of complex ambivalent relationship to these Mexican development administrative officials, some of whom are anthropologists. Um, One of whom uh, is Alfonso Villarrojas, who worked with Robert Redfield in his classic work on Chancom earlier. So I'm writing about the relationship between the Mexican state and uh, Harvard anthropology uh in the in the 50s and the 60s um and i'm i'm thinking about how the field school uh instituted ideas about the neutrality including the cultural neutrality of method um starting to think about whether it might make sense to make an argument about ethnographic method as being this you know what what um you know uh some of the kind of uh critical um uh uh thinkers around uh, race in, in in anthropology call a, a white public space uh whether the, the kind of um, training in ethnographic methods, the kind of scientific neutrality, the objectivity that it cultivates uh, in students um, is is an, I'm thinking about whether it's an understudied part of the history of anthropology and what it might mean to start in big, uh, by looking at the history of anthropology in big collaborative fieldwork projects um, and also thinking about method rather than thinking about theory. So, so, so much history of anthropology is about the history of ideas, history of theory, maybe a little bit of social history. Um, but right now I'm writing, I, I just wrote an essay that's about um, the relationship between the Eni uh, and Harvard. And I'm, I'm writing an essay right now about Evan Vogt's first major purchase for the fieldwork project, which is a, a land, which was a Land Rover. He bought a, a Land Rover off-road vehicle in, the, in 1957 when he started the project because Chicago had one and he wanted one too. And so I'm I'm touching like a little bit of the automobilities and a little bit of the infrastructure literatures uh, to, to rethink the history of Maya ethnography
1: in the highlands of Chiapas. Wonderful. The book is Afterlives of Affect, published with Duke University Press in 2020. Professor Matthew C. Watson, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Adam. It's been a real pleasure to be able
2: to, to join you today.